1: Welcome to The Crux. Today, we're really delighted to have Peter Goodman joining us on the show. Peter is a global economic correspondent for The New York Times and previously was executive global news and business editor at The Huffington Post and Shanghai bureau chief for The Washington Post. Peter's had quite a distinguished career that spanned three decades. He's covered some of the most momentous economic transformations and upheavals of our time, in 2008 he reported for the Times on the global financial crisis for which he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His new book, which is causing quite a buzz, is Davos Man: How the Billionaires Devoured the World. It's a pointed examination of the titled archetype Davos Man, which we'll talk about, which is a shorthand for the globe-trotting, well-connected, extremely wealthy business leaders. Whom the late political scientist Samuel P. Huntington called Davos Man. It was released this month to wide praise and attention. Peter, welcome and thank you for taking the time out to talk to us on the crux. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start. You know, I described the origin of the phrase Davos Man. So, as a way of describing what your book is about, could you tell us more about it? Some of our listeners probably aren't familiar with this annual meeting of business leaders in a ski resort. So why'd you choose it as a title of your book? And I guess, what's it all about? Well, I chose it as the
2: title of my book because I was really interested in the nexus between global inequality and these right-wing populist movements. I was living in mm-hmm. London when I started the book. i had been writing a, book, a lot about Brexit, which is really this kind of nativist response to inequality. I was writing quite a bit about Trump and the trade war. I was spending time mm-hmm. in places like Italy and Sweden and Germany and France, where the extreme right is on the move, typically demonizing immigrants. And what I came to see was that the real offender wasn't the political opportunists who were superficially blaming immigrants. Mm -hmm. It was the billionaire class who over decades had engineered this bottom-up transfer of wealth. And I was regularly attending this event, the World Economic Forum in Davos, which is this gathering of heads of state, (laughs) celebrities, and of course, the richest people on earth. And they were taking note of right-wing populism and inequality and starting to worry about pitchforks at the gate and so the official seminar, I mean, I should stop and tell you, Davos is many things. Most superficially, it's this earnest group of panel discussions that plays out for four or five days uh, every January in the uh, oddly charmless village of Davos, high up in the Swiss Alps. <laughs> um, and it, you, know, you can go to panel discussions about climate change and quality and the future of work and automation, You know, all the sorts of topics that, that you would expect. And the billionaires uh, go there under the mantra of committed to improving the state of the world, which is this incredibly ironic title, given that these are the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. And so I came to see Davos as serving the aims of the billionaire class to insulate themselves against economic redistribution, to protect themselves against any accountability for the results of just a handful of people dominating the bounty of global capitalism. And they can sort of say, look, here we are. I mean, I've been to Davos and watched billionaires engage in simulations of the Syrian refugee experience where like they're literally blindfolded and run around in the dark while people are screaming at them, demanding papers and languages they can't understand. And then they all congratulate one another for their empathy. And then they go off to a dinner hosted by some global consulting company or bank, and they you know, eat truffles and drink champagne. So I came to see this place as playing this key role in allowing Davos man, I mean, that's the species that I refer to in the book, to present himself to us as our friend while he's really ripping our face off. He's a predator yeah. who strikes the stance of savior.
1: About this book is some of the words you've used here and in, in your describing your book's mission, the word predator who attacks without restraint, perpetually intent on expanding his territory and seizing the nourishment of others. So you've chosen to represent those people, five, what I would call highly successful CEOs from, at least from a financial standpoint, please tell us why you've chosen them and maybe pull one out as an example.
2: So I could have chosen, you know, any number of CEOs and ended up with essentially the same story. I mean, Davos man is overwhelmingly white, male, American Davos man. We're talking about the billionaire class. And I'm interested in this particular slice of the billionaire class that, again, is not simply content to end up with all the money and to unleash lobbyists and accountants and lawyers Mm -hmm. to make sure that more money flows their way but is actually very adept at selling us on the idea that when we organize our economies around their prosperity, We all benefit, you know, through the magic Mm -hmm. of trickle down. So I selected Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, this big Silicon Valley tech company, who's Mm -hmm. on the World Economic Forum Board of Trustees, who's known as a philanthropist, who engages in this sort of now cliched bohemian, you know, mystic rhetoric. He'll tell you that. He started his company when he took a sabbatical to Southern India, when he was suffering this Mm -hmm. existential crisis. And he consulted with a woman known as the hugging saint. And she hugged him amid clouds of incense and told him that the purpose of his life was to make a lot of money and then give it back to society. It's this trope, you know, that we're familiar with. He's very skilled at presenting himself as this magnanimous philanthropist. He really does engage in philanthropy, but- he paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes, not once but twice, when Salesforce was racking up billions of dollars in revenues. And so he typifies somebody who presents himself as a game changer. We can count on his company to be this you know, force for social progress. Well, really, he's an enabler of the status quo. Well, I also choose Larry Fink who, of course, is the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company. This is a company that is now managing $10 trillion in wealth. We're talking Mm -hmm. pension funds from around the world, university endowments. Larry Fink, like Mark Benioff, is a champion of this notion of stakeholder capitalism, Mm -hmm. this idea that, you know, Milton Friedmanism is behind us. Companies are no longer just maximizing profits for shareholders. They're now organized to address social issues, to deal with climate change, to cater to their stakeholders, labor, local communities. And most famously, we saw in the summer of 2019, uh, these, this new statement of a purpose of a corporation that was right, delivered by business yeah. business, Round <laughs> business roundtable, then headed by another one of my characters, Jamie yeah. Diamond And this, I mean, we will get to the media later. A lot of very credulous writers declared this kind of landmark and it's capitalism 2.0. We can now essentially outsource our problems to the billionaire class. Which is a handy way of saying we don't need regulations, we don't need progressive taxation. We don't need antitrust enforcement because Larry Fake and Mark Benioff can be counted on to solve all of our problems.
0: Peter, I think it's interesting. Gary and I have both been to Davos, but you know, as I listen to your argument and I also listen to the kind of people that maybe aren't as scrupulous, you know, I'm struck by the sense that. Is there a sensible middle here? Is, you know, I'd love your view whether companies can really serve a broader purpose, or do you think by nature companies are just profoundly self serving?
2: I, mean, I think companies can serve a broader purpose and I'm even willing to believe that Benioff's company is serving a broader purpose. I mean, he, to his credit, whether whatever you make of a hugging saint story and the fact that he leads his executives in you know, prayer ceremonies in the surf in Hawaii. And his I mean, we can have some fun <laughs> with that if we like. So, I mean, Salesforce really does by all accounts contribute 1% of its revenues, 1% of its staff time to a whole bunch of philanthropic efforts. I'm willing to believe that that's made a difference. I mean, Benioff, Made a big point of noting that, you know, in the first wave of the pandemic, he pulled his connections in China to secure 50 million pieces of PPE and distribute them to frontline medical workers. That's great, you know, and I'm sure that that probably saved people's lives and that's fantastic too. But we got to ask ourselves, why are we dependent upon the goodness of a Silicon Valley DO to outfit frontline medical workers in the wealthiest country on earth in the middle of a pandemic? I mean, I think that while we can look to companies to organize themselves better than they have. I mean, Amazon, I mean, Jeff Bezos is one of my five characters. Amazon could do a whole lot better than having its warehouse workers laboring with no protection whatsoever called essential workers while they're supposedly prioritizing, you know, hand sanitizer and PPE to save people's grandmothers. While in fact, the warehouse workers I talked to were saying that's just complete nonsense. They were sticking the same stuff in boxes as always, jars of peanut butter, video game consoles, sex toys, and then have Jeff Bezos thank them all for the $5 billion that was required to blast him into space in the middle of the pandemic. You know, we can do better than that. We should applaud CEOs who do better than that. But the Mm -hmm. point of my book is to say, we can't outsource our functions of democracy to the billionaire class. Corporate CEOs do, in fact, Larry Fink will tell you this, have a fiduciary responsibility to their investors. That means that there's always going to be one special stakeholder, and that's the shareholder. And let me tell you, I'm not here to demonize corporate CEOs mm-hmm. or capitalism, for that matter. It served us magnificently. It's a source of incredible innovation, incredible wealth, but we need regulation or, We need antitrust enforcement to prevent the natural tendency toward monopoly. We need mechanisms like progressive taxation to ensure that more people can actually benefit from the gains of capitalism than have now. And we can't fall for whatever idea these guys cook up in their public relations laboratories or places like the World Economic Forum in Davos to have us say, "Okay, guys, yeah, you just run the world and we'll just sit in the corner and not pay attention to what's actually happening.
0: So your book paints a picture of an unfair economic system that favors the rich and hurts working class people. And in fact, there are some specific places where you draw a comparison between the socioeconomic gaps of today with that of the late 19th century with the robber barons. One, is that really fair? And then two, you use the term cosmic lie about taxes, deregulation, and trickle down economics. Help us with what you mean by that.
2: Sure. So the cosmic lie is this idea that we've seen pop up again and again, not just in the United States, but in Britain, in France, where Emmanuel Macron basically took office by catering to people like Bart Arnault, uh, the CEO of of Louis Vuitton, uh, to cut wealth taxes. It's this idea that if we hand more money to the people who already have most of the money, they will employ that money to invest in productive businesses, to employ more people. And the magic of trickle-down will spread the benefits to everyone, something that in reality has happened zero times. I mean, this is a (laughs) wonderful way to justify the one part of the story that always does happen. The rich people really do end up with more of the money. And then traditionally, we saw this after Trump's tax cuts in the U.S., which lavished $1.5 trillion on cuts, people like J.P. Morgan Chase, CEO Jamie Dimon, who was running the business roundtable, helped deliver them, and Mark Benioff and Larry Fink. What happens is, companies take the money and they hand it to shareholders through share buybacks, through dividends. They don't invest in productive capacity. I mean, let's look at a company like Ford, right? Now telling us, oh, we can't make cars. We don't have enough computer chips. We need a bailout from the federal government so they can make computer chips in the United States to save us from our decision-making that put us in a position where we're dependent upon one huge supplier in Taiwan for our chips. And by the way, it turns out Ford isn't even Particularly important buyer of those chips compared Mm -hmm. to the really important ones. This is a perfect example of we get capitalism, we get a kind of corporate welfare when that suits our interests. And all along the way, we sell this cosmic lie to justify more tax cuts and deregulation. How much capacity in chips could Ford have produced in the United States all by itself if it hadn't spent, I can't remember what the number is off my hand, but several billion dollars on share buybacks in the couple of years running up to the pandemic.
1: Well, Peter, wow. I think I need a hug after, <laughs> <laughs> after listening to So, uh, you know, I just love the sharpness of your perspective. And it really is something that our listeners should engage in, in, in this discussion. You know, we have a lot of people who do PR communications, students, academics, folks who are in the C-suite. And so you know, it's so important for them to hear this kind of perspective, which is really informed and and in your book quite well done. So I want to follow up on something Mike asked you about, which is about working class people and sort of the man on the street perspective of this. You know, many people see government as incompetent for good reason. Right. Right. And not just here in the U.S., but globally as well. So if government is incompetent, and business is greedy, what can the man on the street do to drive change? Where do they turn? Well, first of all,
2: this notion that government is incompetent is directly related to what Davos man has been selling us for 50 years. This idea that, oh, I've got this. I can make better use of the tax dollars that you'd be squandering on a bunch of bureaucrats in Washington or in your state capital. So give it to me and I'll run philanthropic Mm -hmm. enterprises or I'll I'll deliver more innovation that'll produce more trickle down. I mean, our government in the U.S. has essentially been systematically pillaged by Davos man. I mean, we now live in a country where the people who are running companies, people like Steve Schwartzman, who's another character in my book, who's worth $35 billion, he's the world's largest private equity magnate, is handing over a smaller percentage of his income and wealth to the federal government than the people scrubbing his toilets at his multiple residences that he owns the way most of us own socks. And it has real repercussions in terms of just the ability to have a conversation about important issues like pandemic policy, like climate change. It's not reasonable to expect that anyone's going to be willing to make sacrifices in the short-term for longer-term gains. Right. I mean, how do we tell a coal miner in West Virginia, hey, sorry, pal, we don't need what you do anymore. You know, good luck training to become a solar panel installer. If it's, that person yeah. see, you know, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion, has a salary of 83,000, which is roughly what a public school teacher in California makes, and is paying income taxes accordingly, and we don't have wealth taxes. how is the, How are we supposed to tell the coal miner in West Virginia, you know, yeah, it's sacrifice hey, so that we all don't die. Skill here. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. But, and, and, but what would you do? What would you tell them? If you what, were king for a day, what would you tell them? What would you do?
2: I would tell them that in Denmark, where there are much higher rates of taxation and wealthy people do pay taxes, which, by the way, is the biggest differentiator between the United States and just about every other developed democracy, right? In the rest of the world, they tax rich people. In Denmark, if the breadwinner in a family of four at median income, loses their job. Six months later, they're living on 87% of their previous income. In the US, the similar figure is 27%. So if you're talking to a labor union, if you're talking to an industry that maybe needs to go by the wayside or a company that hasn't been so competitive, in the U.S., the workers there, their lived experience boy, we better monkey wrench change. We better not get with any program that involves us losing what we've got right now because it's a pretty uh, close path to sleeping you know, outdoors. In Denmark or in Sweden or in, in, Norway, in the Nordics, it's much easier to actually have a sort of entrepreneurial response to real problems. I mean, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I went to a big mine in the center Mm -hmm. of Sweden where they were going to bring in self-driving trucks and they were, you know, automation, right? Classic case, automation, threatening jobs. And I talked to all the workers in this mine and every single one of them said, yeah, we're fine with that because if this makes our company more productive, then wages will go up. And that Mm -hmm. wasn't some sort of crazy fate. That was their lived experience because in in Sweden, they have a system where uh, the productivity gains from their form of capitalism translates into higher wages, they have very high union participation, the unions sit across the table from employers associations. And so they could take that to the bank. Whereas, again, a union in the state says, well, I can't count on any of that. I have no power at all. So I'm just against change. And that actually weakens the competitiveness of American companies, it weakens our entrepreneurialism, how many people would quit their dead end jobs in the US, and maybe take a chance on a good idea if they weren't worried about losing their health care. So we can't finance any of these things in the US, because we don't tax rich people. And that's why people quite legitimately, to come back to your original question, say, oh, you know, government's so inefficient, government is so so minimal, government can't solve my problems. So they're susceptible to these narratives that capitalize on that for more of the same. The, The classic Davos man playbook is starve government, weaken government, then say, look, government can't do anything. So why don't we just annihilate government? And that's the way in which Davos Man has systematically dismantled public infrastructure and transferred the proceeds to themselves. And we've run this open air experiment and how that idea works out. And here's how it works out between 1945 and 1975 in the United States, productivity gains did translate into higher wages for working Mm -hmm. people. And since then, they simply haven't. And if we had organized our economy over the last four decades, the same way we did in those first three decades after World War II. One study shows that the bottom 90% of the workforce would have $47 trillion today. I mean, that's kind of all you need to know.
1: Right. And so, Peter, that sounds great. Given the political realities of this country, what is the likelihood that we can run the Denmark playbook? You know, it's slim. I mean, as I say in the book,
2: we know what we have to do, and it's not complicated, and it's not radical, and it's not socialism. It's not trash and cab. We need to get back to what we previously had. I don't want a time machine back to 1975. We made all kinds of progress that we need to hang on to. I have no fetish for that particular period. But in that one regard, where we had stronger labor unions, and they could command their share of the gains, we had progressive taxation, and we had antitrust enforcement. If we could get those three things, we could solve a lot of problems. But you know, the political climate, it's not like some random thing, it's yeah. directly created by Davos Man, which dominates our political sphere through campaign contributions, the unleashing of lobbyists, accountants who you know effectively write the tax code. They widen the loopholes. They find new boondoggles. I mean, we are subject to the manipulation of Davos, man. And to give you just an obvious example, I mean, take Amazon, which in Mm -hmm. the middle of the pandemic, again, depriving warehouse workers of PPE, claiming that they're doing this heroic work by keeping them going, firing the head of worker at a Staten Island, New York warehouse who led this walkout, you know. They're depriving people of paid sick leave, not by accident, but through their own lobbying. And in the middle of this, they produce a bunch of TV spots that are designed to look like real TV news, interviews with workers saying everything's wonderful, here are all the steps we've taken to respond to our workforce. And they distribute these to a bunch of local television stations around the U.S. and scores of them air these as if they're their own segments. I mean, this is, (laughs) to come back to this question about, you know, is it fair to compare today's Davos man to the robber barons? Hey, the robber barons would have killed for that kind of capacity. I mean, (laughs) to have data. I mean, they simply owned the local newspapers and that provided the ability to misinform if they needed to. But confusion is the ultimate thing that reinforces the status quo, because then we all say, oh, you know, the politics are impossible. And that's, you know, I don't mean to, to Any actor sowing
0: misinformation? It's not just these business leaders?
2: Sure. I mean, certainly lots of media entities that win when they just get a click and they slap a banner ad on a click are part of the problem here. And again, like this is not some sort of puppeteer conspiracy. I mean, I'm not saying like all of our problems are the result of the billionaire class. What I am saying is that the single biggest element to the undermining of our democracies, to the dysfunction of government and the lack of resources, and to the lack of faith in institutions, the single biggest thing is this bottom-up transfer of wealth. And the single biggest thing that allows Davos man to perpetuate this notion that he's actually our friend and to use that to maintain the status quo is the fact that we can't you know, talk to one another. And yes, there are a lot of other actors who have some responsibility for the poisoning of the discourse and the, the media certainly bears plenty of blame there.
0: Peter, you arguably work for the most influential news organization in the world. What do you think of the media's relationship to these ultra powerful, wealthy individuals that you cite in your book? And doesn't the media have some culpability in driving and supporting this billionaire good guy narrative, which you write about in your book?
2: Yeah, without any question. I mean, I think that The media, we tend to be manipulated more than we are manipulating. I mean, by and large, most – I'm not talking about my own employer, right? I mean my own employer has a subscription (laughs) model and people pay good money for real journalism quality. It's It's the other
0: guy. It's the other guy.
2: I mean – it there there's a lot there's beauty to you know actually having to produce something that's quality enough that somebody will pay a lot of money for it and i'm lucky enough to work in a place that that runs that way and that you know finance and research and yeah, the, but one could argue
0: that wall street journal has the same model right and yet my guess is editorially you disagree more with what they do than what the new york times does
2: oh i don't know i mean look there's lots of great reporting in the wall street journal and, and the new york times but i mean to, to your fundamental point i do think that we have, not by accident, absorbed this notion that anybody who's made this kind of money must be a genius, and therefore they must have a lot of solutions. And the beauty of that idea is that a lot of that's true. Like, take Bezos. I mean, Bezos is not worth $200 billion by accident. He's obviously a genius. He obviously was very early to understanding the promise of the web and e-commerce in terms of execution. To run something on that scale and satisfy that many customers is miraculous. And hats off to Jeff Bezos, who's certainly one of the greatest business people of all time. But we can say that and at the same time say, wouldn't it be nice if maybe you paid some taxes so that... The benefits that you've enjoyed, like the highway system and universities that have churned out smart people financed by the taxpayers who can help you build your fortune so that they can function. Wouldn't it be great if your employees were actually covered by paid sick leave? I mean, Bezos is not a guy who succeeded while his employees haven't done so well. He succeeded because his employees Mm -hmm. haven't done well. I mean, it's an exploitative model. As I argue in the book, he's monopolized the gains of globalization and international trade, which are actually beneficial. I mean, these are sources of progress and social cohesion and peace in the post-World War II era. And he's actually participated in poisoning American attitudes toward trade and globalization because he has so systematically monopolized the bounty. And, And to come back to your point about the media, I do think there's this implicit notion that, you know, we have to, it, it's like an all or nothing sort of proposition. We either have the status mm-hmm. quo, and there's all this inequality, and some people don't do so well. There's either that or Venezuela. And that's mm-hmm. the ultimate triumph of Davos, meant, is insinuating that basic idea. And we see it with vaccines. I mean, if you criticize vaccine distribution, even with you know, sensible, thoughtful mm-hmm. people, people will reflectively say, Well, you can't criticize Pfizer. I mean, Pfizer's helped us, you know, see yeah. the end of the pandemic. But isn't that,
0: mm-hmm. the cha- isn't that the challenge we have across society, across the world now, is that everything's a dichotomy? You're either with us or against us. How do we get to a point where there's an assessment and we all move forward. I mean, I I look at your book and I find it very intriguing, very challenging. And then I, I wonder, okay, so what's really the goal here in writing this book, other than exposing these individuals? Was your goal to really focus on what are some of the systemic inequities or is the idea here to challenge the actions of Davos men in a way that makes sure they walk the talk?
2: My goal, it's less to challenge uh, their notions so they walk the talk because I don't put stock in the idea that CEOs are going to save us from from our problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Billionaires are not going to save us. They are going to continue to provide innovative solutions to all sorts of problems. The market system is hugely helpful in terms of solving a lot of our problems. But ultimately the goal of my book is to expose the fact that what we've lived through, this pillaging of our social systems, the undermining of our democracy, this did not happen by accident. The fact that Mm -hmm. a handful of people have captured most of the gains of capitalism While huge numbers of people have basically been kicked out of their economies and have been left vulnerable to crazy conspiracy theories, and that has led to the dysfunction of our societies, that did not happen by accident. And we've been here before. I mean, we stared down the robber barons, Mm -hmm. and we tamed them with antitrust enforcement and social safety nets financed by progressive taxation. It's harder to imagine
1: doing that again, but it can be done. We've still got democracy. Peter, so this is sort of an artificial question, but I think important. As you've provided a diagnosis, what lever, one lever or a couple levers would you pull do you think that would change some of this dynamic? Is it progressive tax code, anti-monopoly regulation, universal basic income? What could be most effective in changing this dynamic? Certainly progressive
2: taxation and antitrust enforcement and a boosting of labor power. Universal basic income is interesting. It's it's an interesting idea that once seemed completely impossible and suddenly seems permissible given that we've Mm -hmm. just come through this period where we're writing checks for trillions of dollars in the in the name of pandemic rescues. Universal basic income is interesting because it commands support across the ideological spectrum, but that also makes it something to be cautious about because mm-hmm. people like Mark Agreed. Benioff favor universal basic income. You know, this idea that the government writes a regular check every month to every member of society, regardless of their income. So there is this basic social safety. In Silicon Valley, it's become this, way of saying, well, okay, so our robots are going to put all you people out of work, but here's your check. So we're good, right? And that's no solution to our problems. And that becomes an invitation to just gut other forms Mm -hmm. of social spending. But the idea that there's some kind of payment that allows people to take for granted that they can stay in their home, they can have healthcare regardless. I think that would be very beneficial for capitalism. I mean it would not only make people feel that they have a greater stake in society, it would take away this, you know, all the obvious forms of desperation that result from this kind of inequality, but again it would prompt people to go start businesses mm-hmm. and take risks that they simply can't take now. We'd probably get better ideas and faster economic growth.
0: But Peter on a more Personal level as a, as a communicator, as a journalist, you've got to feel good that there have been lots of favorable reviews of, of the book. But I was intrigued. NPR, and it was, they had a very favorable review. They said in their review of the book that this book is an angry powerful look at the economic inequality that's been brought into sharp relief by the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you agree with that word, angry, to describe your your work?
2: Yeah, I have no beef with, with angry. <laughs> um, I think if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, or you're one of the lucky few who's benefiting. I mean, what we've got you know, I do a lot of report, most of my reporting is not hanging out in places like Davos, it tends to be fairly bottom up. I mean, I just hang out with cattle ranchers who people might be surprised to learn are increasingly going bankrupt, even though Americans are paying record high prices for beef. Hmm. And, uh, and we're eating more beef than ever. Guess who's getting all the money, the four packers who now control 85% of the market up from 35% when we deregulated that industry and lifted antitrust enforcement back in the 1980s. So that's an example where you know, a lot of people will read my stories and they'll you know see that a cattle rancher whose third generation is weeping as he's telling me that he might have to sell out and liquidate his, oh, that's so sad. You know, it's not sad. It's, out- I mean, of course it's sad, but it's outrageous. It's simply outrageous that a person who is not a coal miner whose industry is no longer needed and is not part of the future, but is in fact doing something of value desired by huge numbers of people and doing it in the same way they've been doing it for three generations while adapting to change can no longer make a living doing it. And you can see that the beneficiaries in this particular case are you know, the JBS Corporation, a Brazilian but, conglomerate.
0: Yeah, but part of that is that it's an international market, right? You've got places like Argentina that are no longer allowing the export of beef. Well,
2: that should increase the take for ranchers in the U.S., right? If they're no longer exporting, then the supply is smaller. Therefore, there's even more demand for the people I was talking to in Montana and Missouri. But that's not the case at all. What in fact happens is beef gets imported into the U.S., From places like Uruguay, it gets sent to a slaughterhouse in Colorado and then gets labeled as U.S. beef when it gets put into another box. I mean, this is a classic case of trade, which is something that we ought to see as part of the solution actually being a kind of predatory force for Americans who are trying to make a living.
1: So Peter, let me, uh, I've been promising to come back to the sort of PR laboratories thing you mentioned earlier. You know, Mike and I, this is what we do, public relations and, and what I teach today. You know, inside companies, there are people like us who are advocating for some of the things that you're talking about, which is, you know, more of an approach that balances the needs of the folks who have a stake, that awful word stakeholders, which I hate, have a stake in the success of the company. Would you admit that not everyone is perfect, but some companies, they're on a journey, right, Peter, to, you know, I worked at GE, obviously, and, and, you know, the GE of today, even though it's got troubles, does have a different perspective on the world than, let's say, in the 1990s.
2: Companies come in all varieties. There are brilliant people in corporate America and throughout The corporate world, and there are decent, well-intentioned people. What I'm trying to, and and frankly, the five people I write about in my book, Mark Benioff seems like a nice, likable person. I'm Mm -hmm. sure he's fond of his family. I mean, I'm not trying to denigrate people personally or or demonize them. I'm looking at the incentives that are at work, and the incentives that are at work in publicly traded companies have been short-term. And they've mm-hmm. been about maximizing profits, yep. often at the expense of long-term resilience. I mean, look at you know our, our continued supply chain problems, which are reflective of all sorts of things. One of the things they're reflective of is this over-reliance on just-in-time manufacturing, which was this idea that makes a lot of sense if it's done properly, but if it's done according to how you know McKinsey was selling it all through the 80s and the 90s as a way of justifying higher executive compensation, more sharebacks, Uh, more share buybacks, more dividends to shareholders at the expense of actually building some resilience against pandemics, natural disasters, you know, et et cetera, can become a very bad thing. So businesses can absolutely be sources of progress and we should call out those who are doing it well, but we still have to take heed of the incentives at work and we cannot Mm -hmm. count on the shareholders themselves and ultimately, Davos man succeeds because he's great to drive that change. To,
1: we can't count on him yeah. to
2: drive that change. That's right.
1: So I'm interested in you. You know, you're a. You still have a day job. Sure. Right? As you say, sound, writing a sounds like a fascinating story about cattlemen. You describe yourself as an outsider with insider access. So again, the folks that you know, Mike and I know in this industry, we make our living working with people like you, and trying to be as effective as we can in representing our clients. How do you think this book changes your relationship with your sources?
2: You know, I've been surprised through my career. I've never been somebody who's put stock in so-called access journalism. Like, I've never pulled punches thinking like, oh, then I'll position myself to get that scoop down the road or that guy will like me and that will benefit me this way. I mean, every story I remind myself again and again mm-hmm. that I work for the reader and by doing right by the reader and gathering up tales that help the reader understand what's going on in the world. I assume that over time people will keep talking to me and that hasn't stopped working. Now i spent three days with Steve Schwartzman at a conference in China a few years ago where we got an hour at the great hall of the people with Xi yeah. Jinping, you know, he didn't particularly engage me then I suspect he probably won't now. That's fine. I mean, I, I'm much more of a, <laughs> I, I like, I spend most of my time talking to people whose job description does not involve talking to people like me and who are frequently surprised that someone like me is even interested in what's going on in their lives. And I find that's actually a source of insight That's much harder to come by if you're sort of sitting at your cubicle waiting for some PR person to come and hand you something or get some interview with somebody who, you know, could just as soon be talking to 12 other people, if not you. That's never been my MO and it, it never will be.
1: So one last question, Peter, are the next generation of business leaders, people I see here in the streets at BU and in classrooms do you think they're going to change us? Are, are they better people? I don't mean to diminish today's leaders, but are they going to change the system that you've described?
2: I mean, again, I don't think we can count on them to change the system. I think the system has to be changed by the public because the public, I mean, that's what democracy is, right? The public gets mm-hmm. to have a say about the rules and who benefits from those rules. I do think that youth, And people coming of age in a time when we value diversity, racial diversity, gender diversity, Mm -hmm. uh, when we understand that our sensitivities simply have to change, you know, I I mean, it's not just going to be a bunch of middle aged white guys getting to sort of say and do whatever they want, and treating people like they're being, you know, overly sensitive, if they don't like it, I think a generation that's come of age in a time when they're accustomed to having to think about how their words and actions affect other people, that certainly opens them up to the possibility of change that just isn't there in a time when a business is dominated by people mm-hmm. who are more or less the same and, and share values. But again, we can't—we cannot outsource the writing of the rules to the CEO class. We got to take ownership of democracy
1: ourselves. Well, Peter, one of the things I'd, as a PR practitioner, recommend to you is that you speak your mind more. You know this is. <laughs> Stop Pia, well, around the bush, Pete. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, one last thing for me is: so you've posed Davos Man. Is there an anti-Davos Man, and what does that person look like?
2: Nah, I mean we we don't need hero worship, right? That's partially how Davos Man's magic works. We and and we need to get away from this idea that we need some sort of you know incredible transformation. We need some radical agenda we need to reclaim some pretty basic things. We just got to get back to realizing that you can't sustain a society in which huge numbers of people have legitimately concluded that their ability to support their families and live in a middle-class standard just doesn't really matter very much to the people running society. That's not going to, that's the problem. It's not going to be fixed by like some other demagogue, you know, Mm -hmm. spouting some other script. That's, that's going to come from, from people paying attention to the outcomes and trying to drive some of the money out of politics and getting back to basic things like better paychecks for more people, fair play so that uh, companies aren't just able to prey on one another with their scale and progressive taxation so that we can actually finance things that people actually want. I mean, it's, it's not a radical agenda to say, oh, you know, healthcare help with housing, help for people who stumble, and then let the chips fall where they may. You know, I mean, in the Nordics, they say we don't protect jobs, we protect workers. We we need something like that in, in the United States, and we'd be a lot better off.
1: Terrific. Peter, thank you so much. The book is Davos Man. How the Billionaires Devoured the World by our guest today, Peter Goodman. And for anyone interested in the intersection of business and society, and particularly folks who work in communications in the business world, this really is a re- well worth your time. So, Peter, thank you for being on The Crux.
2: Thanks so much for your excellent questions.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.